I asked you, uh, what is Einstein's theory of relativity? Uh, maybe some of you uh, would be able to say this. It's E equals mc squared, right? Some of you might be able to say that, and that's pretty good. Uh, others of you uh, might even be able to say, well, it's energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And if you said that to me, oh, I'd be really impressed. But how many of us can really say what Einstein's theory of relativity means, right? It's one thing to be able to say the formula, but can you say uh, what it means? Certainly, I cannot. Maybe some of you out there can, but, but not me. And so you're probably wondering, where am I going with this? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in our passage today, we're going to see uh, that Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, Right? Finally, after eight chapters of, of uh, Jesus uh, doing miracle after miracle and teaching upon teaching upon teaching, uh, uh, finally, one of the apostles gets it right. Peter confessed, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But then just as quickly, like almost no time has passed uh, before uh, Peter shows that he doesn't really understand what it means to be the Messiah. So he got Jesus' identity right, but his mission and his purpose, he got that all wrong. So what's the point of memorizing Einstein's theory of relativity if you can't explain what it means? You know, it might be nice to impress your friends or maybe answer a trivial pursuit question or something like that, but there's really no point to it if you can't say what it means. And in the same way, it's not nearly enough just to say that Jesus is the Messiah uh, without knowing what that means. And Jews in general, and Peter uh, specifically with the apostles, uh, they had a completely different conception of what the Messiah was and what he would do than Jesus' conception of the Messiah. And so getting his identity right was really only the beginning. There was so much more. And that's why in our passage today and in the chapters to come, uh, we're going to see that Jesus had a whole lot of teaching to do on this topic, not only about his identity, but also about his mission. So we're going to start today with Peter's confession. Uh, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so far, so good. But then we move on to correction because uh, Jesus had to rebuke Peter because he didn't understand uh, Jesus' mission. And we need to understand both Jesus' identity and his mission and his purpose uh, because if we call him the Messiah and we don't know what that means, then we won't understand how we're saved. Uh, and it won't, uh, we won't understand why Jesus came. And we won't know how to live as Jesus' disciples. Uh, so that's why this is so important. So let's read the confession first, verses 8, 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So remember last week when we left off, uh, Jesus was uh, in Bethsaida, and that's where he uh, healed the, the blind man in two stages. My slide's riding a little high there. So uh, the, the, uh, the slide there ends at Caesarea Philippi, uh, north there of uh, Bethsaida. That's where Jesus went, north into this region of Caesarea Philippi. And it's right at the base of Mount Hermon, which is a very large mountain in Israel, about 92 feet, 9,200 feet high. Uh, and it's called Caesarea Philippi because uh, Philip the Tetrarch uh, rebuilt this city and he dedicated it to Caesar, uh, so Caesarea, but then he wanted to distinguish it from the Caesarea that's on the Mediterranean Sea, and so he called it Caesarea Philippi, and of course he wanted to attach his name to it, why not? So uh, he did that while he was at it, so Caesarea Philippi. 
But before it was Caesarea Philippi, it was known as Peneus, a, Peneus, a, a Greek city dedicated to the Greek god Pan, uh, who was the god of the wild. And so uh, here's what this city looks like today. You can go and see it now. In fact, if you're coming on the Israel trip, you will see this uh, just there behind the waterfall. Uh, there is the grotto, and there are a couple of uh, places where you can see shrines there cut into the rock uh, in various places along this particular uh, part called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and so I think it's interesting that this site that was once dedicated to a Greek god, this is the place where Peter is going to make this great confession that Jesus, in fact, uh, is the Messiah. So Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? I remember this is the same question that Herod asked in chapter 6 when he was trying to figure out who is this, uh, this Messiah. Uh, and, and so uh, everyone was trying to figure out who he was, uh, including the apostles. And the apostles then gave the same answers, the same uh, possible potential answers uh, that Herod was given in Mark chapter 6. Well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he is one of the prophets. Now, these are all complementary answers, right? There, I mean, there's nothing derogatory about calling Jesus one of these things, except it doesn't go nearly far enough, right? It does, doesn't, doesn't at all touch on who he actually is because Jesus was so much more than John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Uh, and the people still just didn't understand this yet. They had seen Jesus perform miracles, uh, but even those who followed him weren't calling him God or calling him the Messiah. The only ones who were doing that were the demons, right? You are the Holy One of God. The demons seem to get it right, but the people, uh, they don't get it right. And that's odd because, you know, these Jews had been looking for their Messiah for centuries. And Jesus was doing the very things that, that uh, Israel's Messiah was promised to do in the prophets. And so uh, Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? And I think that's intended to set up the next question, or I'm sorry, who do people say that I am? So he could set up the next question, who do you say that I am? I think that's what he was really getting to the heart of. And so the disciples could have said, well, we say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or the prophets, but Peter answers, you are the Christ or you are the Messiah. And you're like, wow, where did that come from, right? I mean, after eight chapters of getting everything wrong, uh, this is what Peter comes up with. Remember last week when we looked at the feeding of the 4,000, uh, they say to, to Jesus, where will anyone find enough bread to feed this many people after he had only fed 5,000 just a couple of weeks ago? And they're fighting with each other on the, on the boat because they, they only met, remembered to bring one loaf of bread, right? They, they don't get it at all. And now all of a sudden, Peter pops out with this answer, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. How does Peter come up with this? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but, but Matthew does, right? Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he has revealed this to you. And so for the first eight chapters of Mark, the disciples are, you know, bumbling around. They're not understanding what Jesus is teaching. Uh, they're responding wrongly to him. They're misinterpreting his signs uh, and having to be retaught repeatedly. Uh, and this is after they had witnessed his baptism, right? When God parts the clouds and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, they still don't get it. So they were not going to figure out Jesus's identity by their own ingenuity. They needed supernatural revelation. And that's what God gave Peter to understand. God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, it's one thing to say that you're the Messiah, right? Einstein could have said E equals MC squared to me, and I would have said, okay, that's great. I have no idea what the substance behind that is, right? 
And, and so Peter's got this formula in his mind. All right, you're the Messiah, but I have all these preconceived notions in my mind of what it means to be the Messiah. Uh, it did not include the things that, that, it, that, that Jesus actually intended to do. It didn't include uh, his purposes and his mission. Uh, and that's because uh, they understood the Old Testament, but they understood it in a certain way, right? They were understanding a coming deliverer, a chosen by God, anointed by him to redeem Israel. And so we learn this uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, we can understand what the apostles were thinking because of some of the things Isaiah said. In Isaiah 42.1, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, why is that relevant? Because Israel was under the yoke of Rome, right? And so Israel's idea about that was he would remove uh, Rome's yoke and bring justice to Israel. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So you can see by looking at passages like this that, that, the, that the Jews were eagerly anticipating an earthly king, somebody who was going to remove this yoke of Roman oppression uh, and establish Israel as a world power again as it had been a thousand years ago in the days of David and Solomon. And if Israel's Messiah could do that, they would have been thrilled, right? That was really all they wanted. They wanted Rome out. They wanted to live autonomously. Uh, and they didn't understand that God's plan for them included so much more than simple uh, freedom from oppression. Uh, if, if, if they knew what God's plan actually was, how much bigger it was, well, they probably wouldn't have been able to understand it at that point, but, but they, that's what Jesus wants them to know. It's like they knew the formula, Messiah, but they don't know all it means. And so God's plan for Messiah is to deliver Israel not necessarily from temporal suffering, but from their real big problem, right? The ultimate problem, which is their problem of sin, uh, the human condition. Because of sin, we are separated from God eternally. And that problem wasn't even on Israel's radar, right? Because they are God's chosen people. They are the children of Abraham. They don't think that they have a sin problem that they need uh, to deal with. They think their salvation and their eternity is secure because of their status as Jews. And all they want is relief from their earthly suffering. Now, you know, we are guilty of this too, aren't we? Uh, it's easy for us to look back at them and, and say, boy, how shallow, right? To, 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 to want relief from earthly suffering when really your big problem is eternal separation from God. But we do this too. We all want immediate relief from the pain and the suffering that we're in. But what we need to remember is that God's scope is so much greater than ours. Uh, and so he has a plan for everything that he allows us to undergo. And we miss the lessons when we're so focused on the suffering. Uh, we need to look at what God is trying to teach us through the suffering rather than looking at the suffering itself. And so we have to learn to choose to trust God today, even in the midst of suffering, with, with whatever we're going through. And I want us to notice here that, that Jesus did not correct Peter, did he? Jesus did not say, oh no, you got that wrong, Peter. He didn't do that. He was right. Peter gave the right answer. He got the identity right, but it didn't go far enough. And so immediately he says, tell no one. Why would he say that? 
because they would go out and tell people their misconceived ideas about what the Messiah was. They didn't understand the implications of what they were saying when they said he was the Messiah. And so Jesus knew that Peter knew just enough to be dangerous, and that's why he tried to silence him. And so uh, what, he, what he was doing was uh, he, he had a plan to now explain his mission to these disciples uh, before they went out and publicized it. And Jesus' mission was to suffer. And as we'll learn more next week, the disciples' mission was to suffer as well. You follow your leader. You, your mission is the same as his. And so uh, what would have happened is that if people didn't understand Jesus' mission, uh, and, they thought that they, and they thought that their earthly conceptions of what the Messiah was were true, they would have tried to seize Jesus. They would have tried to make him king, to, to hasten Rome's demise and hasten Israel's uh, victory over Rome. And so they needed some intense training, and that's what Jesus was going to do uh, in verses 31 to 33 and in the coming chapters. So let's talk about correction. Uh, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." And so here begins the teaching, right? They got the identity right. Now they have to know and understand the mission. Uh, the tense of the phrase, he began to teach them, uh, indicates repeated action. This is just the beginning of much teaching uh, that is coming. And in fact, uh, in Mark's gospel, over the next several weeks, what we're going to see is this a repeated pattern of Jesus teaching uh, the disciples through the end of chapter 10. And this is what it's going to look like. Uh, the pattern is Jesus teaches on his suffering and death, and then the disciples misunderstand what he's saying, and then Jesus teaches something about discipleship. Three times we're going to see that. So uh, in this particular passage, uh, he predicts his death in 831, uh, and then he's going to uh, now talk about how the disciples miss it, and then he's going to talk about discipleship in chapter 8, which we're going to look at next week. And then that's followed by another cycle of uh, Jesus predicting his death and suffering, uh, again misunderstanding, again teaching on discipleship, and then one more time in chapter 10. So three times he's going to go through this cycle. So Jesus is affirming that he is the Messiah, but there's more teaching to be done. And he affirms that he's the Messiah, uh, in fact, by confirming it, by calling himself the Son of Man in verses, uh, in, in verses 31 through 33 here. Remember, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So again, we can see where the disciples get this idea, right? They, they were thinking peace, prosperity, a kingdom that will never end on earth. But now Jesus says, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and I must die and the disciples were like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? How can that be so? They couldn't grasp it. And that's why Jesus has to continue repeating this cycle of his suffering and death, misunderstanding, and teaching about what discipleship means. And so uh, Peter couldn't understand 
what this meant, that, that, that Jesus must die. And so he rebukes Jesus. How could their Messiah die? He's supposed to reign and rule forever. Uh, Isaiah 9, uh, the, the, the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to his kingdom and he will sit on the throne of David forevermore. Uh, this is what they expected and, and it's hard to blame them. I'm sure we would have expected it if we were in their shoes. What they didn't understand is that Messiah comes twice. He comes once to die for the sin of the people. He comes a second time uh, in glory to judge the world. But before we get to Peter's rebuke, let's talk about why it was necessary that Jesus be rejected and killed. This word, this Greek word for it is necessary is the word day, D-E-I. That's translated must. Uh, what it means is it is necessary. Uh, it has to happen. It can't happen without it. Uh, it is necessary. And so Jesus was explaining to the disciples that he could not come into his glory without suffering. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed. He must be. Now, these people, the chief priests, the elders of the law, they should have been the ones who were most eager for their disciples, right? Because they were the ones who were most knowledgeable about the, 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 the scriptures. They should have recognized him when they came. They knew about the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53. They knew the things that the Messiah was supposed to do uh, from the prophets, the very things that Jesus was doing. But instead of believing in him, they rejected him and they killed him all according to God's sovereign plan because that was Jesus's mission and purpose. It was necessary that Jesus suffer uh, and be killed to pay the sin debt of humanity. Now, why does humanity have a sin debt? Well, since before the foundation of the world, God appointed Jesus to pay for humanity's sin. Humanity's sin came into the world when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Sin and death entered into the world, and God placed the entire world under sin and death's curse. And because we are born uh, as a result of being Adam's progeny, we inherit his sin nature, and we sin. And so there is no way that you and I can enter into heaven. Adam, representing us in the garden, sinned, uh, and we are doomed to eternity apart from God in hell uh, without Jesus' work. And that's why Jesus came. He came to live a sinless life that we could not live and then die on the cross to pay for our sins. And that's the redemptive work that Jesus had to perform. That's his mission. That's why he came. So that's one reason. Why is it necessary that Jesus had to be killed? Because he had to die for the sin of the world. But another reason is that it's the only way that God can, can maintain his holiness and his righteousness and still allow sinners into heaven. God could never lower the bar of holiness to allow you and I into heaven. Because of our sin, we are disqualified. So God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, had to come to earth and live this perfect sinless life that we could not live to meet God's standard and then take on the punishment that we deserve in our place so God doesn't have to punish us. And when we believe God credits us with Jesus's righteousness and charges all of our sin to Jesus's account, and God maintains his holiness and justice on the one hand while offering mercy, grace, and love to us. What an amazing God we serve. That is staggering, uh, that transaction that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why it was necessary, why Jesus must suffer many things and die. 
Now, of course, the disciples didn't get any of this at this point, right? This was too soon for them. Uh, They wouldn't understand this until after the resurrection, after the ascension, uh, and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. So at this point, when Jesus rebukes them and says that he must suffer and die, we can only imagine the stunned faces, right? The, 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 the faces on the, the apostles as they're trying to figure out, what are you talking about? And the silence that undoubtedly ensued as they tried to wrap their arms around this. If Jesus is the Messiah, how can he be rejected and killed? Verse 32 says, Jesus spoke these things plainly, all right? Uh, one of the things Jesus does in the first eight chapters is he, he speaks in parables. He uses a lot of figures of speech. The disciples are kind of slow to figure out what Jesus is talking about. Uh, but it was impossible to misinterpret the words of verse 31. The Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again. So he spoke to them plainly. And so Peter understands that uh, just enough to be dangerous, right? So he takes him aside. Uh, he has the gall to rebuke Jesus, right? Uh, Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Can you imagine? Uh, Jesus, you are the Messiah, but let's do it my way, right? Uh, can you imagine that? And, and then on the other hand, I think, yes, I can imagine that because I do that all the time, don't I? And, and probably you do too, right? Uh, God, I know you're sovereign and good, but this suffering that I'm going through, it, it's really not necessary. You can probably bypass this and let's skip right to the good part where I learn the lesson and, and you know, we eliminate the suffering. I'm sure your plan is good, but my idea is better, right? We, we do this all the time. And that's pride, and that's our own desire for human comfort, our desire not to suffer. Uh, And so that's what Peter fell victim to. Somehow through uh, his own pride, his own misunderstanding, he thought he had the authority to rebuke uh, Jesus, even though Jesus was the Messiah. And it's just proof that that though Peter called Jesus Messiah, he really didn't know uh, what that meant. Now, Mark didn't record the actual words of the rebuke, but, you know, we can probably imagine them, right? We can probably put some words into uh, his mouth. Uh, He's probably said something like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Haven't you read the Old Testament scriptures? Don't you know what the Messiah is going to do? He restores Israel to former glory, right? He frees the captives. He, he heals the blind. Uh, you know, all the things Isaiah wrote about, you remember that, right, Jesus? That's the kind of stuff we could imagine uh, Peter saying. The Messiah doesn't suffer and die. He lives. He rules and reigns. You know, come on, Jesus, get with it. So, uh, you know, he's just not getting who Jesus is. He doesn't know his place uh, with Jesus, Now, what might have happened if instead of Peter focusing on the you will be killed part, asked questions about, what do you mean you'll rise again in three days? Imagine Peter focused on that part. Well, then, who knows? Maybe Jesus would have said at that point, well, Peter, you see, it's like this. Uh, There are two comings. I come the first time uh, to pay for the sin of humanity and satisfy God's wrath in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And I come the second time in glory to judge my enemies and sit on my throne in fulfillment of Psalm 2. And Peter might have said, huh, I get that. But he clearly wasn't ready for that, right? The disciples were not ready for that. And so he reacted humanly. And so Peter probably encouraged Jesus to claim the glory without the suffering. And no one wants to suffer, right? You and I included. If there's a way around suffering, you and I are going to take the end route every single time, right? But but that's what makes Jesus different for us. Jesus had the cross before him his whole life. He knew it was coming, and he knew he could not avoid the cross. He came to earth knowing that his mission was to suffer and to die for us. And so when when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, what was Satan doing? 
He was saying, Jesus, if you bow down before me, I can give you all these things because these things have been granted for me to give. And what did Jesus say? Three times he said, Satan, I read the word of God, and this is what it says. Worship him and worship him only. And he sent Satan away. He had the opportunity, uh, or at least Satan's temptation was to, to have him avoid the, the pain of the cross and skip right to glory. And Jesus refused to bypass the cross because he knew the only way to glory was through the cross. And so that's why uh, Jesus called Peter Satan in verse 33, because Peter was trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross uh, and take glory without the cross, just like Satan did. Now, of course, Peter was like you and I. We don't want to see people we love and care about suffer. And Peter undoubtedly rebuked Jesus out of love so that he wouldn't have to go through this. But he was unwittingly doing Satan's bidding. And that's why Jesus called him Satan. Jesus didn't have the luxury of avoiding the cross. Uh, he had to die to redeem humanity. He must suffer to reconcile believers to God. And so Jesus speaks to Peter harshly. Get behind me, Satan. Satan, right? He had just gone to, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, to get behind me, Satan, right? That's a huge gap. And so it just goes to show how quickly we can go from blessed are you to Satan when we get out of line with the will of God. And so it's so important that we always keep ourselves aligned with the will of God. Uh, Peter was not the leader, right? He was the follower. He was the disciple. Jesus was the leader. And so a disciple must know his or her proper place. And what Peter said didn't align with Scripture, nor did it align with God's will. Even though he was trying, he thought, to, to, to uh, speak uh, with proper motives. And, and Jesus said, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. And so we learn about the things of God, the concerns of God, in Isaiah 53, the chapter I referenced a few minutes ago, verses 10 and 11. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So the whole chapter, Isaiah 53, is this prophecy about what is going to happen to the suffering servant. Uh, but I just think that, that this particular verse, verse 10 in particular, where it says it was God's will to crush his own son, to crush him. Can you imagine the love of God, that you would be willing to crush your own son uh, for people who, as Romans 5 says, while we were yet enemies, right, Christ died for us. Um, it's, it's staggering to think about the love of God in, in that context. And so, you know, this is high-level theology that there's no way Peter was going to be able to grasp at that time because Peter was only thinking about human concerns. And I understand that because just like Peter, we want comfort, ease, happiness, freedom from oppression and persecution. Uh, but the concerns of God and the concerns of man are two very different things, right? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now, Peter shows a sincere human heart here, right? And he's, he's operating out of what he believes are proper motives. But what we see here is that we can have a good heart and we can think we have proper motives, but if we don't understand the will of God, we can still get it all wrong, right? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever thought you were acting with proper motives and doing God's will and yet you got it all wrong? Uh, I remember 
when we were trying to move to Texas from New Jersey, uh, we had listed our house for sale, uh, which was a very big step for us because we loved this house. And, and uh, we didn't, you know, we, we, we didn't want to sell it, but we just felt like God's call was sell the house and move to Texas. Uh, as I've told you before, that house had been in Molly's family for a century. We loved this house. We did not want to let it go. Uh, so when we put it up for sale, that was a really big deal. And then I got so mad at God because it didn't sell for two years. For two years, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for this house to sell. Why was I mad at God? Because, well, we had taken this big step. And I thought, you know, God, you called me to ministry. And I've, you know, I've told everybody we're moving and, and we're going. And what's going on? You know, I was so mad because his plan was different from mine. But I wasn't thinking about all that God had to do, all the groundwork he had to lay to make it okay, to make it easier for us to go. You know, we had friends and family uh, in New Jersey who were sad to see us go. And I had a law firm that wasn't ready for me to leave. And, you know, our kids were, you know, not thrilled to say the least that we were going to, to move to Texas. And, you know, it took two years, I think, for everybody to wrap their minds around this. Uh, and then we were more prepared to go. And so, uh, you know, in my anger, I was like, yeah, I want this God and I want it now, but God said, just be patient, relax. I have a plan. Let me work it out. And so I told myself I was doing God's will with the right motives, but I was still mad at God because I didn't understand his plan. And many of you may relate to that. You may have a similar story to that. So we have to always remember to keep our minds focused on the things of God and not the things that we see, the, the, the temporal things that we go through. God is mysterious and he's surprising and, and as we said, his ways are higher than our ways and sometimes his will is hard to understand. And so oftentimes all we can do is, is pray, follow where God leads. We walk through doors that he opens. We uh, go to another door when that door is closed. When he tells us to wait, we wait. Uh, we don't get out ahead of God. And so that's what we ought to do. What we should never do is to presume that we know better than God, right? To, to presume that we are the leader and God is the follower. Uh, to try to dictate to God what ought to happen, like Peter did, like I did, uh, trying to say our plan is better. So uh, I may not understand God's plan, but, but I am confident, or I ought to be confident, the more I walk down this road of discipleship, that God's plan is good. And even when I don't understand it, I can still trust God. And that's important because we are called to the same mission Jesus is called to, to suffer, to give our lives for the gospel. And we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, for this week, let's wrap up with a couple of applications. And the first one is this, to know your Lord's identity and his mission. You know, it wasn't enough for Peter to call Jesus Messiah any more than it would be for me to stand up in front of a classroom of physics students and say E equals MC squared without being able to explain the substance of it, right? You have to know what it means. And so the word Messiah means anointed one, uh, his chosen one. God chose Jesus. But what did he choose him for? He chose him to die, to live a sinless life, to suffer and die in our place so we can have eternal life. That was Jesus' mission, to suffer and die to accomplish God's will. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And now the only question for us is, have we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do the benefits of his death uh, come to us because we have placed our faith in him? Uh, if you believe in him, you have heaven and it's secure. You can't lose it. But if you don't believe in Jesus, well, then you are going to spend eternity apart from him in hell. And so you have to know Jesus's identity and mission, understand your need for a savior and how Jesus bought your salvation. 
Now, assuming you do know that, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the next thing we need to do, we need to know our place. We don't correct Jesus. He corrects us, right? We don't presume to tell Jesus what's best. He decides. And so we have to recognize with humility that, that we don't know all God knows. And so all we can do is read the Bible, keep praying, keep asking other Christians for counsel, uh, recognize that God has a plan and that he will accomplish it. So we should not get out of ahead of God. We should not lag behind God. We should not tell God our plan is better. Uh, we should do things his way. Uh, so know your Lord's identity, know his mission, and know your place. Because being aligned with God, uh, being under God's authority, and in humble submission to him is what keeps us in his will. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, we just thank you for this passage where we learn about Jesus' mission. Uh, what he accomplished for us, Lord. And we thank you for it because we would be doomed without it. We thank you for your grace and mercy, for your love of us, Lord, uh, that you would allow such a thing, that you would punish your own son for our sins, Lord. Uh, how incredibly gracious and merciful of you. Lord, help us to know our place so that we would get in line behind you, uh, submit to your authority, and Lord, uh, orient our lives around your will, not ours. Uh, Lord, these are things are difficult for us to do uh, because of pride, because we, we choose comfort. Lord, I pray that we would uh, learn that it's best to follow you and that no matter what it is that you take us through, you will be with us and that you are good and you are sovereign and ultimately you will work all things for our good. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.